2: We often look at our relationships in terms of extremes. Someone is either a friend or a foe. But a new book suggests that we should actually be looking at how someone is both a friend and a foe. Friend and Foe is also the title of the new book by Wharton Professor Maurice Schweitzer and Adam Galinsky, who's a professor at Columbia Business School. They're here today to talk to us a little bit about their book and how you can apply it in both your life and work. Maurice and Adam, thanks for being here.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Now you write that a key insight of the book is that both at work and at home, we're competing and cooperating all the time, often at the same time. You also point out that we often miss the mark by focusing on the discussion about whether it's better to do one or the other. So why is that?
0: Well, I think it starts with the idea that we love to categorize things in our world. It really helps us navigate our way through our social experience. So from a very young age, we categorize their girls and their boys. And that extends to thinking about people as either our friends or our foes. We just do that
1: natural categorization. And and as academics, we also do that natural categorization when we construct our theories. You said, you know, we miss the mark all the time because it's really easy to come up with theory that says, we are born to compete. It's also very easy to come up with the alternative theory. It's like, we have an innate instinct for empathy. And so even as academics, we're trying to simplify the world to try to understand it, and it's easy to take that one's lens. Now to keep both those lenses, you know, and describe this idea there's a tension between them and a balance between them, it makes the world a little bit more complex, although obviously more realis- realistic. Um, and so this idea that we're competing, cooperating, all the time exists for every relationship. In fact, it, it, you know, it even exists for co-authors, I think, right? It was, so, yeah,
0: it was true for us. I mean, even going back and forth, uh, taking terms, writing and revising, and you know, we we talked about whose name is going to go first on the book, and we decided to go with the convention of
1: alphabetical order, even though you know we both contributed equally. Yeah. And could then a coin toss. You know, there's right. really no difference between um, it's just it's just an alphabetical. But even that, you know, creates some tension. Like, how are we going to decide who gets to be first, who gets to be second? Because being first is still a little bit better you know and so fortunately i was born with a slightly you know earlier name in the alphabet but you know it's 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 you know you see that cooperation competition tension existing even as we wrote the book
2: right now you identify actually three forces that influence how we shift from friend to foe. And those are scarcity, sociability, and dynamic instability. Can you describe each one of, those, one of those and talk a little bit about how they interact with each other?
1: Yeah. So, you know, let me give you one of the examples we use in the book, which I really love, which is the grevy zebras in Africa. Now, you take these three forces of sociability, scarcity, and sort of dynamic instability, and you can see that happen. So they have an incredibly scarce, important resource on the plains of Africa, and that's water. Now, when water is abundant, they form, in a particular form of social organization, these strong collectives with lots of people interacting with each other in stable units around the water source. But when water becomes scarce, then they quickly sort of dissipate from the collective, form – they they form more sort of small bonds with each other um, and that often are temporary bonds too. And so you can see how this scarce resource, which is dynamically changing over time, produces different types of social relationships.
0: Yeah, and that's true even with people. Uh, We find, for example, siblings often compete for a scarce resource, which is parental attention. And so we have siblings, and we think about brotherly love, where siblings can be incredibly collaborative, the best of friends. But we also think about sibling rivalry. They can be incredible adversaries, often competing for some of these scarce resources. And this can change quickly, dynamically, as the family structure changes. Or even at the very beginning, uh, breastfeeding, for example, is one way infants delay the arrival of a new sibling. Uh, that is, by breastfeeding longer, women are less likely to get pregnant, and that, that preserves their, their attention uh, for, for as long as they possibly can.
1: And you can even see that change happen. Let's say a parent gets a new job that's more demanding of their attention. The family structure hasn't changed, but now the cooperation might become a little bit more competitive as they compete for that, that scarce resource. And one thing that actually uh, connects Maurice and I is that I'm, I'm a twin and his uh, wife is a twin. And so even in the womb, you're competing for scarce resources. So I was born much smaller than my, my, my sibling, and there's a weight difference for, with Maurice's wife and, and uh, her twin sister. You know, I'll give you just one other example. Think about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving starts as the most cooperative day of the entire year. We come together as family and friends, we have an abundance of resources, all this food, and then we switch, sometimes within an hour of the end of Thanksgiving dinner, into one of the most competitive moments of the year, Black Friday. These, what's scarce, these incredible deals, Two TVs, you know, for $30. And what do people do? They literally trample each other to death to try to get one of these TVs. And so we can see these these re- scarce resource, whether it's a good deal, whether it's parental attention, whether it's water, it changes quickly over time and fundamentally alters social relationships.
2: Now, you also have a lot of examples in the book. So, again, I mean, where? how can we take kind of the daily things that a leader of a country goes through, which, I mean, I don't think a lot of us could really even imagine. But then also we can apply them to our lives.
1: I think, you know, I think there's—I think we can talk about just three examples of presidents. You know, one of the things that we talk about is um, one of the key things that we want to do is we want to signal trust to other people. We want them to trust us. And since the advent of television, um, every president in the United States has signaled trust in one very, very simple but specific way. They get a dog. Right, so take Barack Obama. Barack Obama's daughter is allergic to dogs and yet he still felt compelled to get a dog. Scott Walker he's got two dogs. Scott Walker headline in the New York Times is Scott Walker allergic to dogs will he defy history by not getting dogs. So that's you know, one of these examples. But we also even see like in presidential or uh, you know, in parliamentary politics right? how important social comparisons are which is another incredibly important part of the book. And you know, I, Maurice has a great example there.
0: Well I mean yeah in the book we talk about Uh, two brothers, David and Ed Miliband. And if you're from the United Kingdom, those will be familiar names. They were both vying for the leadership of the Labour Party in in the United Kingdom. And uh, David was the first to announce that he was going to run. And his younger brother, Ed, announced that he was going to compete for that position. They went through several rounds of voting. And finally, at the very end— uh, the younger brother, Ed, edged out David. Now, this this social comparison, that is, we're constantly comparing ourselves with people around us, including our siblings. And here, that sibling comparison is a really intense one. And when we go out of order, when the younger brother gets advanced first, or we can think about when one sibling gets married before another sibling, when we go out of order... We're making these comparisons that can be very unpleasant and and David, for example he he not only resigned from parliament he ended up leaving the country he actually came to new york he he didn 't do it right away but but he talks about the invidious comparison that was really corrosive for him
1: and as a, as a final example, you know just take presidential debates we 're going to see a Republican debate tomorrow night, and the question is you know, do I want to like break out on my own or do I want to sort of be in step with other people? And in one study that I did with some of my colleagues is we actually analyzed every transcript of every televised debate and we looked at something really simple. Did I mimic or was my verbal structure similar to the person who asked me the question or the person who I was responding to, let's say my opponent? And now you might think, you know, if I really use a different sort of verbal structure, I'm going to show them a leader. I'm going to be different. But if I use A similar verbal structure, it shows I'm kind of in tune with you, that makes it more smooth, that makes it easier for you to process what I say. And so we actually showed that people who did more verbal mimicry actually got a higher boost in the polls after the debates. Now this occurs in every walk of life. So just for example, waitresses. Studies show that if waitresses mimic the behavior um, and words of their customers, they get higher tips. Study I did, if you, know, you like to lean back, if I lean back a little bit in my, in my chair and we're negotiating, I get, a better, um, I get a better deal if you like lean forward. If I lean forward a little bit towards you, I get a better deal. And so this mimicry occurs at the presidential level, you know, in restaurants, in negotiations, at work, all over the place
2: there's a lot of examples in the book that seem to contradict a lot of commonly held thinking and one of the ones I thought about is you know two that really stood out was one that teams may actually be better off when they have less talent and then another one is that it's actually better to be interviewed last for a job whereas i think our we might all think that you know it's it's better to be first because then you're first you came in first yeah. so i was just curious about like how did that how does that play out? Why is what we think is true not actually the case?
1: Yeah, so with the talent one, you know, we call this the too much talent effect. Um, and the idea is that when we have a lot of talented people <clears throat> in a group, one of the problems that can occur is it can create what's called status conflicts. Like who's really the best person? Who's gonna be the alpha person? Who's gonna take control? Who's gonna dominate? Now, sometimes that's not really a problem at all. Let's take a sport like baseball, right? Um, In baseball, the more talent is always better, right? If we get a bunch of people who can hit home runs, you're always gonna win more games. A bunch of people can pitch really well, you're always gonna win better. But in baseball, I don't need to coordinate my behavior very much with anyone else. I just need to hit the ball as hard as I can. Now, let's take another sport like basketball. It turns out in basketball, you see this too much talent effect. You really see this phenomenon where at a certain point, talent is helpful but then it goes down and actually hurts you. Now, in basketball, we have to coordinate our behavior incredibly well. When I'm shooting, that means you're not shooting, and so therefore, who gets the ball is a scarce resource. In addition, it's much easier to score if I get the ball in a position close to the basket or there's not a defender, so that means it requires a lot of coordination. Even like rebounding in defense requires a lot of coordination. And so what we found is when teams get above a certain level of talent, they don't coordinate very effectively, they don't have a lot of assists, they have more turnovers, and their winning percentage actually goes down. And just take, you know, a good example recently was when um, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers had Kobe Bryant, Dwight Howard, Steve Nash, and even their coach said, I don't even like watching us play. It's like an, no one likes watching an all-star game because the all-star game isn't just jump people jacking up shots. This is what we have right now is we have an all-star team, but we don't have a real team. And so you can see this too much talent. So the key variable, and this is what really matters, is how much do you and I really have to coordinate? If we have to work together as a team, you can have too much talent, and sometimes you do, you're, you're better off, less is more, getting a little bit less talent if we don't have to coordinate at all and we're just independent people um, whose own talents contribute directly to performance, more talent is always better. So it's really cool because we can really see like basketball and baseball, how one variable interdependency and the need for coordination determines whether more talent is always better or you get too much talent. I mean, related to these
0: sort of structural ideas, you can think about uh, these order effects that you mentioned before, and in many cases, it's better to go last particularly when there are many different competitors or we're we're choosing among a lot of different candidates. If you look at, for example, American Idol, you look at ratings of the Olympics, uh, going last is a huge benefit, particularly when the judgments are subjective, where one of the things we're doing as judges is we're holding out. We leave room in our first judgments because we want to see if somebody better might come along. By the time we've gotten to the end, We no longer need to keep that buffer. Uh, And second, there's a recency effect. That is, our memories are remarkable, but they're limited. And we forget things over time, and our memories are sharpest for the most recent things. So there are two benefits, at least two benefits, that the last person receives. And you see this play out in a lot of different competitions where... It's often best to go last.
1: And, and you know, part of this where I got really interested in this topic was back when I was in grad school, I got an interview at the University of Chicago, great you know, job, and they wanted me to be the first one to come in. And I was back in my mind feeling a little apprehensive, but I asked you know, uh, a lot of my fa- professors, like, oh, we always want our best candidate to come first. And I went and interviewed, was the first one interviewed, didn't get the job, you know, and then still kind of thinking in the the crawl of my mind about this. And then I realized in my entire five years at Princeton, we'd had five job searches and the last person had gotten hired every time. And then, you know, when I was at Kellogg and and I got interviewed there, I was the last person to be interviewed and I got the job. And so you can really see how, you know, this effect really, really takes place.
2: I don't know if everybody knows this. Everyone's gonna wanna go yeah. last now. And now there's a, speaking of job interviews, there was also something in here that I, there was also something in here about you guys had a colleague yeah. who used a really interesting exercise right before her interview that actually helped her ace it. And this was in your chapter about power. So yeah. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit about that?
1: Yeah, so you know, many years ago I was trying to understand how to study power. And you know, if you go in the lab and you say, you know, Maurice, you're gonna be the boss, you know, Adam, you're gonna be the subordinate. There's a lot of things going on to really just try to understand the basic psychological consequences of being in power um, other than just the power. You know, like Maurice has to think about, what am I going to say to Adam and direct him? Um, and so we came up with this you know, manipulation to study experimentally where we just said, think about a time when you had power. Really just sort of recall that experience. And what we found is that actually the same effects, if I, if I told Maurice to think about time he had power, is the same effects if I actually made him the boss. And so what happened is one of my former students, Jillian Koo, who's now a tenured professor at London Business School, but she went for an interview, and her first interview was at at Harvard, and it didn't go very well. They really plunged her with questions. She was kind of knocked off her game. She walked out of there feeling pretty demoralized. And so when she goes to do an interview at London Business School, you know, she's trying to sort of, you know, regain that sense of confidence. And they give you about a half an hour before your talk to settle in. She said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to do Adam's experimental manipulation, you know, just see if it actually get the same effects. And so she wrote about a time when she had power, literally physically wrote it out to really, like, get into it. And then she was complete control of situations. She was just, you know, knocking the questions back, you know, answering things. And, you know, she got the job, and, you know, she's still there to this day. And it was, you know, just one of those examples. We had another colleague who had been in the market a couple times, um, hadn't done as well, went in the market a third time before every talk wrote out a... um, uh, the power prime um, and got four offers that year, you know, so you can just really see how, you know, you can just by taking this reflection and thinking about time when you had power has this transformative effect. Well,
0: let's say, I mean, there are a lot of great examples, but, um, but Adams run hundreds of studies, where, not hundreds. I mean no, hundreds dozens, you know, probably hundreds, uh, where, where this, this experimental manipulation brings back, it sort of creates a psychological sense of power and it's been incredibly widely uh, adopted.
2: Now, the book, I mean, it stresses that, you know, we're both cooperating and competing constantly and simultaneously. But I'm wondering now, I mean, are some people better at one than the other? I mean, like, if I'm really good at confidence, but maybe I don't always know how to defer, who to defer to, like, how can I use the knowledge about which one I'm better at to sort of help me in these situations kind of check myself, for example?
0: Well, yeah. So, so certainly some people tend to be cooperators. Some people tend to be competitors, and some of us are sort of in the middle, harder to classify. And there's a social value orientation scale that can help us classify people. So so there are definitely individual differences. And there are things about a context that can push us one way or another. That is, there, there are cues in our environment that can easily push us one way or another.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, you know, you asked us really a great question. I'm like, how do we you know, recognize the fact that there always is this tension and we're cooperating and competing um, and that we have to find a balance between these forces. And I think about the interview context is a really great one. How do we do well when we're going for a job interview? Well, we want to express confidence, but we also don't want to express arrogance. So the key balance there is to express confidence as a way to sort of compete well, but also to express some humility as a way to sort of show cooperation. And I think that one of the things that, you know, Maurice and I really think as valuable about this book is that it allows people to ask themselves the question, am I finding the right balance? Am I finding the right, am I being exploited so I'm cooperating too much? Am I losing opportunities to make connections because I'm competing too much? And I think that just by asking ourselves that question periodically, maybe once a month, it allows us, it gives us a sense of power. It allows us to correct course, um, but it allows just asking the question allows us, huh, you know, maybe I need to be a little bit more cooperative to get back more in balance. Or maybe I need to toughen up a little bit to get back more um, into the competitive mode. And so I think that what we hope this book does is allow people to recognize we're always cooperating, we're always competing, to recognize that tension, and also to ask ourselves if we're finding the right balance. Well,
0: and I, I had one other idea, which is um, something that I tell my students, uh, I think we, we, you know, a lot of us tell our students, to keep a journal um, for negotiations. Uh, And I tell my students, you know, after the course ends, you know, keep, keep this journal. As you go through life, jot down some things about your negotiation, what you expected, what surprised you, and how things ended. And I tell them to look for one thing in particular. If you look back across 10 negotiations and you find that you're satisfied with your outcome every single time, you're probably not setting your goals high enough. If you look back across an arc of negotiations and you find that you've ruptured relationships nine out of ten times, you're probably being too competitive. And so here we can think about looking for data to help us bring ourselves back into balance. Mm -hmm.
2: Now, one of the things I thought was interesting, I mean, you're talking about the individual there, but I also found that the book, I would think, has a lot to offer for, say I'm a manager and I'm managing a team and I have a diverse team of people, like really thinking a lot more deeply about the team dynamics and how to deal with them and how to kind of structure things so I'm getting the best out of each person.
0: We talked about social comparisons before. We compare ourselves with other people. And as a manager, we might think, well, okay, let's try to make everything equal or let me try to gain trust by, by creating be- better transparency. And so Gravity Payments, they, they made payment information transparent, they, so they shared that information, and they brought everybody up to you know, sort of equal salaries. Uh, a disaster. Is a, a sort of, and, and I would say a rather predictable disaster. That is, we, we crave comparisons. We, we want to know how we're doing compared to the people around us. That's how we figure things out in our, in our social world. The salary information is a really key piece of information, um, and there's a good reason why we don't talk about salaries as freely as as we might, um, because it's going to make some people feel absolutely terrible. And when you start moving people's salaries around, people are going to find inequity. Uh, it's, it's easy for us to justify why I should be paid more, somebody else should be paid less, and, and it's an easy source for us to become
1: completely miserable. And I think in this case, it's really interesting. He was motivated by an incredibly well-meaning intention, which is some of my employees can't afford to live in the Bay Area. Like, they're getting paid $35,000. They just can't pay rent. What if I just move them up to $70,000? Everything's going to be great. They're going to be able to pay. Now, how do the people who are getting paid $70,000 feel now? They Before, we getting paid twice as much, and it made them feel like, I'm twice as valuable, maybe they have more valuable jobs, maybe they work a little bit harder. Now they're like, you know, it means nothing, right? And so then they end up getting and quitting. And then you actually lose some of your best workers because they don't feel they're being rewarded for their value. And so you can see how this fluctuation changes dramatically. And so by understanding social comparisons, we can, we can motivate people sometimes, but we can also sort of undermine them incredibly well without, without our intention.
2: Now, in this book, I mean, it's a lot about accepting the inevitable that, you know, we're going to make social comparisons, we're probably going to be labeled, or we're going to label other people, or sometimes people are going to be deceptive in negotiations, and sometimes we ourselves might be deceptive in negotiations. So, I mean, when you're entering into a relationship with someone, just as kind of a final question, I mean, are there certain sort of taking stock questions that you can ask when entering into a new relationship to kind of assess this and figure out what the dynamic is and how the dynamic might change? Yeah.
1: I I mean, I think, you know, the question that you're going to want to ask at the beginning of a relationship, also in the middle, you know, is like, how do I find the right balance, right, between these forces? How do I recognize what are the competitive forces and what are the cooperative opportunities, you know, is one way to think about it. And I love this one example that that I've often taught in class, a guy named John Clendenin who got hired um, right out of Harvard MBA at Xerox. And he got a job that the person just below him had really wanted to get. His name was Tom Gunning. You know, he was gunning for that job, right? And John talks about, how do I start off with this relationship, right? We're going to be coworkers. You know, anytime we walk into a job, we're going to be like, how am I going to preserve that right balance between these forces? And he said, the first thing I did is, I didn't invite him for our first meeting into my office because he's going to be thinking, this should be my office, right? It's going to make him competitive. I didn't invade his office, maybe, you know, as another way of power play. I found out what his favorite restaurant was and I invited him out to lunch. Show a little thing. And the first thing I said to him was like, I need you. And the reason why I need you is, you know, lots of people at Xerox. I'm new here. Right. You can really help give me the lay of the land. And you probably need me, too. Right. You didn't get the promotion that you wanted. And maybe I can help you get the next promotion. But then, he, you know, to make sure that it's the right balance. He's like, and if you're not the person that can help me, I can find someone else. Right. So it wasn't just all hugs and kisses. It was a little bit too like, you know, we're there's a there's a tension here. And it's just a great example of saying, we can work together, but I'm not going to be exploited by you, but I'm also not going to exploit you either. You know, and so just recognizing I think that example is a is a really great one. Well, I, th- I think it's important. Yeah, this idea of you know getting off on the right foot
0: is exactly is exactly right. There's we need to think about this balance. And I think often it's you know starting cooperatively but also you know, recognizing that, that tension. In many relationships, we often come to a place where we violated somebody's expectations. So we can think about how to rebuild a relationship. And and we talk about an example from uh, Baptist Hospital in Florida, where there was a tragic medical error. Uh, There was a very young child who had, uh, whose breathing tube had been disconnected, uh, during a scan, and because of that error suffered severe brain damage. Now, what's interesting about this case, after this tragedy, the hospital staff took actions to repair that relationship. They were very candid, they were quick they they apologized immediately and they took actions to change things at the hospital. They ended up bringing this family, in to become advocates for the, ho- the hospital. And the parents talked about how these changes were dramatic, how they were committed to making sure this never happened again. They ended up transforming what would be an adversary into an ally. And there are a couple of interesting things about this. First, there are specific steps that they followed to transform this relationship. But second, these steps had been instituted at a policy level from the head administration, so that is they'd instituted steps to transform these relationships, and they were informed by by research. That is, the the steps they followed um, had a very predictable outcome, and so I think there's a predictability to how we can transform our relationships, to really transform foes into friends and find and find our balance.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think you know what Marie said, I think really captures. Um, I think the essence of the book, whether it's you know, the beginning of a relationship, whether it's in the middle of a relationship, just again asking your, your, yourself a couple questions. One is, have I found the right balance between cooperation and competition? Um, what do they need, getting back to perspective taking, but also what do I need? We're most successful when our needs are being met and your needs are being met simultaneously. Um, are there areas where I could be exploited? right, but are there opportunities to make a connection and cooperation? And so if we periodically ask ourselves that question, sometimes at the beginning of the relationship, sometimes it's after a violation has occurred, sometimes it's just maybe we think the relationship is sort of you know, not humming along as well as it could, um, it gives us those opportunities. And that's whether we're a parent thinking about a child, whether a spouse thinking about our partner, whether a friend thinking about a friend, whether a colleague thinking about another colleague, a boss thinking about an employee and vice versa, asking ourselves these questions are just going to give us so much more control, so much more balance, and they're going to make us so much more successful in life.
2: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.